You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.church. I'm new to the sacramental thing to an extent. Someone told me, we don't have a lot of rules around here. You know, masks, vaccination, those kind of rules, we have those. But like someone said, to me, like, don't touch the candles, or like, they didn't think I should touch them, but I still handle them. But my other question is, this tea says, I read the package, it says, steep for 10 to 15 minutes, which seems like a long time to me. That's like two blueies. Um, you know what bluey is? It's an eight-minute show on Disney about a dog, a blue dog, and he has a whole dog family. Anyway, I, that's the unit of time I, I measure everything in. And hopefully, like, I think by the time my sermon is done, this tea should be ready. So I'm going to set it here, and I hope it doesn't offend you as, like, a, I hope it doesn't, like, um, something profane is being added to something sacred. Okay? Anyone, everyone good with that? Little little Anabaptist communal discernment moment? All right, good. Yeah, anyone? No? Sometimes in Anabaptism, you'll, you'll, you'll want to say no, but you'll refrain from voting. Like, that's, that's kind of how you do it. So you could also do that. Like, I don't like what you're doing, but I'm not going to let anybody know about it. So in the spirit of consensus building, you might say, I refrain from voting. I don't know how this sermon's going to be 15 minutes only. <laughs> I haven't even started. All right. <laughs> Let's read from Luke 3, please. Someone out loud, here's a microphone that'll help you do that. Um, who's down for it? Let's, let's have a non-binary person or a woman read it. Thank you, Megan. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Cephas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Pray with me. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I really like getting my house ready for Christmas. I like when it uh, begins to look a lot like Christmas. I like getting the tree sorted. I like um, putting up lights. My roommate and I, who is also my cousin, we were thinking about how to make the outside lit today. We have, we have plugs that we can plug in outside, so that's one thing. You know, so we're, I think we agreed to lights, but we haven't. I want like inflatable um, 
Christmas things. <laughs> you know, like I want to be like that a lot. And like on, my, on our commute to school, when we commute to school, like during Halloween, there was definitely like sidewalk hazards for sure. Like it's definitely illegal. But it, I appreciate it. I mean, it's wrong, right? Like, there's a, the, the extravagance I really appreciate. And then I go to, like, Target or Lowe's or wherever I'm going, and there is so much for you to buy. And, like, I know some of you are like, eh, I don't I just ignore that stuff and get what I need. I don't. <laughs> I like, oh, I should get that. Oh, that sounds good, too. And uh, I, like to, I, like the, I like the festivities. I want the season. You know, look at how they made the space so nice. It's so great, you know. As someone who likes it so much, now I'm a pre- it's beautiful. Um, I worked at a Christmas candy lane. This is Hershey Park. Very proud person. Hershey's famous now, by the way, because, you know, may the, the U.S. men's soccer team rest in peace. But the star of that team came from Hershey, Pennsylvania. Went to Hershey High School. It's cool, right? I mean, that's, one, that's like the main reason I care about soccer right now, is we have like uh, Mo Salah from Egypt and Christian who? What's his last name? Polisic. Polisic from Hershey. So we got, got a guy from, I'm from Egypt and kind of Hershey. So now we got, we got two guys. Um, and that, working at Candyland, Hershey Park, it's all festive. It starts November 1st, right after Hershey Park in the dark. And they play holiday music all the time. That's why I like Christmas music now. So I like the holidays, I like joy, I like mirth, I like the hope that precedes them and the anticipation and the excitement. I love that, I love the joy in the air. You know, there's this moment in The Nightmare Before Christmas, which is equal parts of Halloween and Christmas movie, where Jack the Pumpkin King goes to Christmas land, Christmas town, and he gets, he said, what's this? And it's all this stuff, you know? The kids are throwing snowballs instead of throwing heads, he says. That's funny to me. But like, it's, it's completely different than Halloween Town. I like that joy. I'm, I have that spirit in me. And I like preparing for the holidays and participating in the preparation, the parties, and the so on, and the caroling and everything, because it helps me feel the joy that's to come. It helps me prepare for the big day. It helps me prepare for the big feast. And I love that aspect of the season. You know, I like when it's time to haul out the holly. I like when we can play Christmas music. I like preparing. I like meal planning. I like the rich food. I like the eggnog. I want us to be able to see the people hoping for joy around us and find it and not not scoff at it, but actually, hey, you're looking for joy too. Let's find some together. Advent gives us a chance to prepare for the birth of our Savior as we await the Lord to return as we observe the people around us, I hope that we can also prepare too. For John the Baptist, the arrival of the Messiah was a joyous occasion for the downtrodden. But a genuine horror for those who couldn't change their way of living. For John the Baptist and the, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, Luke, we think, the coming of the Messiah is a liberating event for the oppressed. But for the oppressors, it's a terrifying event. Those two things are happening. It's a deeply political event that challenges the empire and changes the whole world. And there's a political framing 
You know, I appreciate Megan reading the text to us because there's all these, like the first paragraph there has different names, things that are hard to pronounce, regions, people, and so on. But that's, now, hmm. The accuracy of this is up for discussion. But that it's a political historical framing is important to pay attention to. So he is framing it in the reign of Caesar. Pontius Pilate was the governor. Herod was the ruler. You know, here's the president, here's the governor, here's the mayor. You know? He's like starting it like, in this year, Biden was president and uh, Josh Shapiro was governor. Not yet, but soon, right? And, uh, you know, Helen Gim was the mayor, like that. You know, you can see my own kind of hopes and dreams there as well. Um, That's how he's framing it. So the writer starts with the empire, moves to the governor, moves to the ruler. And then he goes into Herod's brothers too and other governors. Then moves to the next level of leadership, the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. So the writer frames this politically because he is about to supply something or someone that replaces the political order. The word of God came to John of Zechariah in the wilderness. And in the midst of this deeply political setting arrives the word of God to John the Baptist. And the word of God comes in the wilderness. Not in the metropolis, but in the wilderness. And the location of this political activity and political order is different. It's in a marginalized area, away from political power. And it comes to prepare a way for a new one. How does John the Baptist prepare the way? He calls people to a baptism of repentance for their sins to be forgiven. You know how at the beginning of the meeting we repented too, we confessed our sins, we're getting ready too. That's how we're getting our bodies ready for worship. John the Baptist is doing the same thing by calling people to repentance. Repentance means turning away and doing something new. To actively wait for Jesus means that we change who we are according to his way and his order. John the Baptist quotes Isaiah as he prepares the way for the Lord. It comes from 2nd Isaiah or uh, Deutero-Isaiah, which is the section of Isaiah written after Judah falls during Babylonian exile. And in that section, the prophet is writing for a hopeful future liberation. John the Baptist seizes the prophecy and names himself as the one who is making a way for the Lord. The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight. The rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The kingdom of God is accessible for everybody. Just to pause. Isaiah has a prophet, prophecy that concerns his immediate context. Babylonian exile, hoping for liberation. John takes it and changes what it means. John isn't interpreting it for what it is. He's giving it another interpretation. Just like I and we will give it another interpretation. You feel me? Like there's different occasions that you can use this. 
There isn't just one right one. Does that make sense? We're applying it. That's how, that's how we read the Bible together. How do we make a way? We repent, we, which we make our paths straight and direct, and we fill valleys and we lower hills. This has political and economic connotations. We smooth out what is rough, we straighten what is crooked, and through that the world sees how God is saving the earth. For Christians, the idea that our repentance comes with cost and reparation is, is new. The idea that our salvation comes from repentance and an active act that does something, that straightens paths, that fills valleys, that lower hills, that's a new idea. But for Jewish people, it's quite different. Rabbi Dania Rutenberg, anyone ever, everyone know the name here? She wrote this great book on repentance and repair, which I recommend. And if you don't want to read the whole thing, go back to circleofhope.net slash dailyprayerdeeper like three or four weeks ago and find a week of entries based on her work and you can read excerpts of it. In case you can't, I don't have the time or the desire or the attention span to read a book. That's okay. Someone gave you a basis for it. She talks about repentance and repair as something that needs action. This is foreign to some Christians because in the national fabric of thinking about repentance, and I'm going to summarize some of what she says. In the national fabric of thinking about repentance, she says, there's a watered-down, secularized distortion of Protestant thinking or like Christian thinking that has infused American culture. In the 16th century, she says, some of this dates back to it, there's a guy named Martin Luther who has a notion of something called sola fide, which means faith alone. And the conviction is that God's mercy and forgiveness were available to all who believed, and that belief alone is enough for divine salvation. This is Luther's idea. Without works, like external deeds or action. So if I'm going to receive the grace of God, why do I need to repent? Why do I need to have all, what's, what's all this, what's, all, what's with this all, this, all of this political and economic connotation you're talking about? I thought I was saved if that works. This idea that Luther gave was a response to the, the uh, Catholic Church's selling of indulgences and mon- monetary payments that absolved people of their sins and then released them from purgatory after their death. These indulgences were like forgiveness with a price tag. Luther pushed against that appropriately and moved the real action of a person's life into the internal realm. And even though Luther said that Jesus willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance and that good actions were a necessary part of Christian life, later on in the following centuries you'd hear, you just need to feel sorry for your sins. That's forgiveness. This, coupled with Jesus' teaching about turning the other cheek to those who harm you and forgiving 70 times 7, showcases that interpersonal forgiveness is, 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 is an important part of Christian life, Protestant life. But that's not the issue. The focus of forgiveness had results that its originators didn't intend. It was like almost certainly not to elide questions of accountability or to make it not um, incentivized for perpetrators to take responsibility or put the onus of forgiveness on victims without any meaningful redress. So the go- this goes against the Gospels themselves, right? Because this verse about forgiving 70 times 7 
are situated in larger context of community accountability. That passage, 70 times 7, is right in Matthew 18, which talks about excommunicating someone if they won't change their ways. So there's accountability connected to forgiveness. Jesus modeled community accountability in relationships with Peter, with others, but there's still a dismissive attitude towards repentance in Christianity. It's so widespread that Bonhoeffer, who's a Lutheran pastor during uh, the Third Reich, during Hitler, who called that sort of thing cheap grace. That's why we might struggle with John the Baptist's message. That's why when someone suggests that a public figure has done something, let's say, racist, you hear a defender's quickly and loudly denying that the person is a racist. Whether they've done something racist or whether they are racist, whether they, uh, they don't have a racist bone in their body, those things are conflated. Inner state and outer action become the same thing. So if you mean well, there could not have possibly been any harm. And we all know that sometimes people mean well but cause harm anyway. Out of an emotional reaction, they got the better of them, or, you know, you can keep going. This is, of course, not to say that there are some people that are not, in fact, racist or sexist or transphobic. There are. Just that a cultural bias tends to privilege intent over impact. And that has complex roots, even in Christianity. So even without the Christian basis for these, it lines up basically with power dynamics. If harm is perpetrated by a person or an industry or a state, and that individual or state possesses more power than the individuals or communities harmed, when you deny ill intent, that serves the powerful. It evades accountability and it maintains the status quo. Admitting culpability opens up the possibility of change. Resistance to facing harm head on adds more harm to the original offense. As soon as we get to debating the inner state and the intention of a perpetrator, the focus goes from the actual injury and the question of how to set things right to the feelings of the person who caused harm. So the victims are rarely met in a meaningful way. Deep in our faith, we have embedded that accountability for actions, repentance that comes with a cost, is not really Christian. Now, I don't suspect that you hold that belief or that you think that, but we have programmed within us a resistance to this idea. So when we talk about Advent being a terrifying event for oppressors and a liberating event for the oppressed, we have a natural instinct to push against that because we want it to be equal for everybody. We do the work to prepare the kingdom of God to come so that people can name Jesus as their Lord now. But it's not just forgiveness that saves these people, it's their repentance which results in good fruit John the Baptist is about to change lives. He's leading the way. And the Jewish people approach him, and his rage is clear. He calls them a brood of vipers, which later Jesus will call them. 
See how angry he is, how unafraid he is to tell the truth. He's unconcerned about the response of the people he's preaching to because he wants to deliver the truth. Prophets can be like that, and so they're often told they're impolite or not acting in love or they're being angry. But these are a way to silence them and silence their powerful message. Look what he says. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? First of all, that's a pretty aggressive thing to say. They want to come and baptize. He looks at them and says, you brood, who warned you of how you, or the wrath was going to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Don't begin saying we have Abraham as your ancestor because your family doesn't save you. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. And not even now the axe is lying at the roots of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Sorry, it's been longer than this steeps for. He actually wonders who warns them to be saved. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Your baptism won't save you. Your heritage isn't good enough. Heirs of the covenant, that can be raised from the stone. They aren't important anyway. John goes on and says, if you don't bear fruits of repentance, outcomes of repentance, then you'll be cut down and thrown into the fire. John knows that the prepared way for the Lord, we have to repent and show our work for it. Your prayers for salvation aren't good enough. Even the demons believe that and shudder. We have to arrange tangible outcomes for our faith that showcase repentance and forgiveness. Of course, the crowds ask the same question. So what shall we do? What do we do? And he says, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to the camp to be baptized. And they asked him, teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be satisfied with your wages. What does it mean to make the path straight, the rough smooth, the valleys filled, the mountains lower? John is very clear. Redistribute your money. Don't use your power to collect more. Receive a fair wage. Don't use violence to extort people for more. John makes it clear that the way forward is economic redistribution and generosity, almsgiving. It's not surprising then that his ethic in some perverted way makes itself into the current season. Thanksgiving, almsgiving. It's right a part of what we're doing now. So much of the Christmas mythology is around philanthropy and generosity and redistribution. And so the ethic stays with us now. But it doesn't, it, it needs to have an actual impact. We need to strive for an equitable society. You know, your faith is meaningless if you say that you follow this God, this Jesus, and you've repented. But you can't give seven sick days to rail workers. Like, that means you're just a liar. This isn't, you're not serious about this. What are we talking about? You know, like when Nancy Pelosi says, the, this economy will stop if they go on strike. That's true, but they won't go on strike if you give them a collective bargaining agreement that they can move with. 
So like you're not a victim of them. You're a participant in this. They could say that about you too. You're putting the economy on hold because you won't give us seven days when you have an unlimited amount. Endless sick days, you know? Some members of Congress are sick all the time. So like the Christmas message is clear. Philanthropy, generosity, charity. These things have real connotations. But if your love isn't real, doesn't have actual, isn't rooted in reality, then the ax is at the root of the tree. Who warns you of the, of the coming wrath? We do this work so that the world can know who Jesus is. The work we're doing and the pain it brings is so the gospel can be proclaimed. We're preparing a way for the Lord to come. We're remembering that Jesus was the firstborn, yes. But we are hopeful for what's next. We yearn for Jesus to come into the world again. And together we are co-laborers with the Spirit as we keep preparing the way for the Lord. So let's make paths straight. Let's fill the valleys. Let's lower the hills. Let's smooth out what's rough. Let's say a prayer and then we'll do some talk back, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for this time to connect and to worship and to be a community together. May we strive to repent and to make the way straight for you. May we repent where we need to, but may we celebrate when you come liberate us. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected, visit circleofhope.church. You can also find us on Instagram or Facebook at circleofhope.net.